Out of the 94 Best Picture winners, only one will be crowned the bestest of the best. You're listening to The Quest for the Bestest from Backlog Banter. Your hosts are Timo Nelson, Tucker Hazel, Tanner Dykstra, and Abram Buner. You can find more of our content on YouTube and Twitter at Backlog Banter. The episode gets started in just a second. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Quest for the Bestest. It's the podcast where us four Backlog boys look at every single Best Picture winner and we try to figure out where they go on a great big list of the Best Picture winners ranked. It's The Quest for the Bestest. My name is Timo, of course, joined by Tucker, Tanner, and Abram. And if you notice something a little different in the background and sound, I am away on some study abroad right now. I'm over in Britain, even though we make so many jokes about the British not really being people. I'm here, and I've retained my personhood. Uh, I can't believe it. But for none now. of that is important. None of that is important because this week we are talking about On the Waterfront from 1954, directed by Elia Kazan. We've seen another movie by this director, Gentleman's Agreement, if you recall. How I am really excited to talk ago. about this film. It was a while ago, but it's a film that sticks in our minds quite well. And we'll, I guess we'll just have to see if On the Waterfront sticks in our minds as well as the previous Best Picture winner from Mr. Kazan did. Now, we got to talk about this film quite a bit. I really want to discuss what happens. Of course, Marlon Brando's in this film. There's a whole lot else to discuss. But before we get there, we've got a little bit of housekeeping. Last week, we talked about The Sting from 1973. And even though maybe some of us were a little trepidatious as we came into the episode, we came out of it pretty hot. Gave it an average score of 8.6, which landed it on the 24th spot on our list. Pretty high up there. So, on the waterfront, coming up right after someone delivers a comment of the week. Who's got it? Okay, so for this week, we actually got a comment from someone new, but someone who is dear to my heart. We got a comment from Sam Meltzer, who hosts another Oscars podcast, the Oscar Doesn't Go To (laughs) podcast, which I was a guest on. And he says, love this review. Fun fact, The Sting is the most recent film to, to not receive a Best Picture nomination at the Globe and BAFTAs to win Best Picture at the Oscars. However, it was still a very, fairly expected winner. The Exorcist, which did extremely well with critics and precursor awards, was far too controversial and unconventional to win Best Picture. Also, The Sting was a major box office smash and crowd pleaser. Also note that A Touch of Class, a forgotten film, received a Best Picture nomination and is commonly viewed as one of the worst and strangest nominees. I, however, see it as a guilty pleasure. Wow, okay. Yeah, very, very elucidating. Comment. A little trivia. Yes. In a, in a featured comment. Whoa. Wow. I love Incredible. That. Okay. Well, wh- how many of you have seen this film before? I forget. We talked about this at the end of last episode. Tucker, you've seen it. Tanner, you've seen it. This is my first time. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then I want to start with you, Abram. What did you think of On the Waterfront? Uh, I, think this movie, I think this movie is exactly what I expected Quest for the Bestest to be before we started. Mm. And what I mean by that is I had this sort of, when we were beginning the show, I had this, this like idyllic idea that every week we would watch a film and it was going to feel timeless and it was going to feel well acted and well executed and up to the level of quality that I think of when I think of a best picture. Mm-hmm. In actuality, I honestly don't think that's what the, this crop of films has turned out to be, <laughs> as, as we've talked about. <laughs> but to me, this really does feel like the archetypal best picture. Really well written, really well shot, really well acted, really interesting narrative. I think this movie is, is quite excellent. I was a huge fan of On the Waterfront. Wow. Okay. Yeah. High praises from the first time viewer. Yeah. I, I, 
Uh, I had the same sort of notion when I watched this the first time, and it did not shrink from those from those praises on on a rewatch. On the Waterfront is a great movie, uh, for all the reasons you stated there, uh, Abram. Obviously, Marlon Brando is great in this movie. Um, even Ava Marie Saint is also fantastic in her. Uh, I think a almost a first time performance from her. I don't know yeah. if she was a established first time. I believe. First time. Oh yeah, I guess, I think she does get an introducing in the credits of this yes. film. Um, mm-hmm. But she's great as well. You know, she won Best uh, Best Supporting Actress. You got Elliot Kazan, who's one of the all-time, you know, fifties, uh, thirty or not thirties, uh, but the, this era of, of directors. Of directors. <laughs> all sorts of eras. He's one of the directors of all time in many ways, and this is one of the movies of all time. You know, and it, it certainly lives up to to those expectations, which some other films on this list may not have. But so I'm excited to talk about On the Waterfront. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tucker, I, I'm excited to talk about. I'm excited to talk about On the Waterfront as well, um, because I think it is a very good movie as well. I don't, I honestly don't have any criticisms about it, um, but I, this is the second time I saw it, and it was basically the first time I saw it, because frankly, I didn't remember anything about this movie going in. Obviously, Marlon Brando, I, I knew he was in it, I knew it was about the mob, um, but I, I've never found it to be particularly memorable on that first watch, um, and uh, yeah, stays about the same now. It's been about four days since I saw this, and I almost can't remember <laughs> a single thing about it, um, which I think is... Uh, not necessarily a testament to its quality or anything, but just it it doesn't really feel special to me. This is, this film doesn't stick out. I think it is obviously iconic. It's very influential. I think it's one of uh, the top examples of a film of this style from that era. But I think I've just seen these topics covered better in more interesting ways with more complex characters. I think it is a very good movie, but it kind of just feels like what everyone was saying, sort of the baseline of what I expect a, a good movie that wins Best Picture to be. And not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Well, I think this was about the third time I've seen this movie. The first time was at the Paramount in Austin, back home. Um, and today I watched it after an early morning meeting, dead tired, expecting to really have to pull myself through the film. But it really just pulled me right in from the beginning, and I was just, I was enthralled, and I was ready to watch what happened and remember who are these characters, what do they want, what is going on in the plot. And I... I'm pretty much in agreement. I think that we have some really, really stellar acting. It's kind of a no-brainer from Marlon Brando that this is some some amazing performances, but I love, I think he outshines everyone else on screen when he is really giving it all. I do disagree with the politics of the film, but it's like a disagree, not like a I find fault. I think that this film has an interesting situation within like American cinema history in mm. its as in 1954. I'll explain later. Red Scare. Just think about think about Red Scare and McCarthyism as mm-hmm. we discuss about this film. But to me, that's like not a discount against him. That's just another aspect of everything that is going on in this movie. I find it really enjoyable. It really just moves along. Before I knew it, the film was done, and I was like, oh, yeah, what another great film. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Timo, I do have some some Red Scare-related uh, trivia when we get a, when we roll around to it. So, uh, and, and, and it's interesting, for sure. There's lots of mm-hmm. interesting trivia for this movie as well. This I'm is the sure scariest I, movie we've watched for Quest of the Masters. I agree. Yeah. It could have been The Exorcist, but no, they decided against that last week. That's a great week. point. Yeah. It's a yucky movie. <laughs> Where do we want to start with On the Waterfront? Should we start with, you know, one of the legendary actors and uh, best actor winner for this film, Marlon Brando? I think that that's the best place to start for this film because, like I said, 
he, I, he's a tentpole. He holds this film up so much. Just his performances is so convincing. It's that new style, that method acting, the Marlon Brando technique that I think really comes across very strongly in this film in ways that in others, Streetcar Named Desire, it, I, I, I didn't quite get into that film, but this one, I really get into his character. I really feel him a lot. And yeah, I enjoyed Marlon Brando as, oh, what's his name again? I can't remember. I can't remember. Terry. 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 Yeah. Terry, Terry Malloy. Terry Malloy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You get a finger wag from that one. <laughs> um, I agree, Timo. I think Marlon Brando is good for a lot of this movie. You know, uh, would be a a fine best actor winner. Um, it, it, for in my opinion, but then there there's a point in, in here where he really just comes alive towards like I think around the around when that third act kicks in <clears throat> around the time when things are really kicking into gear when you know he's he's meeting with Charlie in that taxi cab uh and even a little bit before that that's where that's where Brando really comes alive in this movie and he's just stellar uh, through the rest of this film and that's that's a good 30 40 minutes of this movie that he is he is dialing it up to 10 or 11 in my opinion yeah <clears throat> I agree I for me I have a hard time usually noticing acting unless it's really good or really bad. And I've said this before, sure. but I think there's like an even higher echelon of really good acting where, where, you know, you just dissolve into the role. And I don't see Marlon Brando. I, I see Terry Bogart as I'm watching this film. And I think that is certainly to its benefit. I mean, Marlon Brando, believe it or not, is a fantastic actor, but I don't think of him as Marlon Brando. I think of him, as as Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, I think of him as the Godfather, mm-hmm. and I think of him as Terry, right? And I think that's just a testament to the fact that he's so believable in this role. He he moves in a way that you 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 see this character moving, the way he interacts with everybody. That as you're saying, Tanner, I think that conversation with his brother Charlie is maybe the best scene in the entire film when he's finally like, you. It wasn't it wasn't happenstance. It wasn't the coach that ruined my life. It was you and. This sort of look on his face when the revolver is pulled on him and as their whole relationship begins to unravel, it's just really powerful and really immersive acting. Yeah, I think that the reason why he shines so bright in this movie, and this is a fantastic performance, obviously, is Terry changes a lot in this movie. I think this is one mm-hmm. of the instances where you're you're watching a character's arc across the movie, and he starts off very surprisingly quiet, but, you know, reservedly tough, but he's just so aloof. For like the first two thirds of this movie, and as he starts learning more about the truth of the situation and how how he was raised and how the people who raised him aren't that good, and that there are other ways to see the world, you can see the the fire be lit in his eyes and in in the character's motivations to where he does end up being very um, outward and aggressive near the end in, in a, like a, in a really strong and confident way. Um, and it's that sort of flip on the head from him being just the most bumfuck guy for like two thirds <laughs> of the movie everyone's just like hey you know it's terry you know we kind of we just give him a couple quarters and we let him go play in the field and he's he's a happy little duckling but uh then you get to see him be a confident guy who's who's able to hold his own in, in multiple fights and i obviously mm-hmm. he was a boxer i'm not saying he's never strong but his personality definitely becomes a lot stronger yeah, he be, he becomes resolved. He has something to to stand for finally yeah. in this, instead of just being acted upon, you know, and sort of this pawn uh, in in this like mob controlling union sort of chessboard that that this movie takes place in. He's not another fucking bum from Palookaville. No, he's not. By the time the he is not. not, and I like that a lot. Unlike um, us, yeah, we all, we are all bums from Palookaville. Uh, 
Abram, Our own respected Palookavilles. <laughs> Abram, you mentioned the taxi cab scene, which is probably one of the yeah. most famous scenes uh, in cinema history. Uh, it, it has one of the, you know, the, the I, uh, I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody instead of some bum from Palookaville, which we were just referencing. But I do have some trivia relating to this scene, because uh, being one of the most famous scenes in cinema, people have written about it, actors have been asked about it, and, and some interesting stuff has come out. So, um, Marlon Brando is sort of infamous for being one of the, um, one of the in famous and infamous in Hollywood, uh, sort of this guy who play, who plays by his own rules and, you know, he, he's, he's sort of a, a, a drama queen in many ways. Uh, but he might've gotten this reputation unfairly because, um, in Marlon Brando's contract for this film, it stated that he could leave at four o'clock every day. Um, and, you know, he, uh, th this led him to not be present for the close-ups of, uh, Rod Steiger, who plays Charlie, uh, in that taxi cab scene. Rod Steiger was very hurt by this because he stuck around for Marlon Brando's close-up so they could get that real personal connection in that scene going. Um, but Marlon Brando left at, d during those points, uh, when they were going to shoot Rod Steiger's close-ups, and, uh, Steiger always really resented that and apparently, like, talked about it multiple times in interviews, how he always resented Brando for doing this. But apparently, to, to Brando's uh, reputation, he, wa he was leaving uh, for therapy appointments every day because he had recently lost his mother and he was trying to get over issue unresolved issues that he had with his parents. So well, a little humanization of this uh, larger-than-life guy is important, I feel. Sure. Hmm. Very yep. interesting. And, well, hmm helps it certainly helps brando's standout performance in that scene that he was there that that, that his co-star in that scene was hanging around during the mm -hmm. close-ups because it does matter i think on set when you are really when actors are bouncing off each other and they're really there in the space performing with each other yeah i'm trying to think i think, I think steiger is also great in that scene and all the other ones because uh, as we as we were talking about he has that he sort of he's integral to um terry's whole character arc where charlie realizes that he's been at least partially responsible for holding terry back and keeping him locked in this in this position where he's you know beating up dudes for quarters or whatever as tucker said um but and he hasn't been letting him you know grow and become his own person yeah even as he reaches nearly 30 years old as he apparently is mm -hmm. in this movie yeah mm -hmm. I think what makes him so compelling is is his situation in this larger narrative here, because it could have very simply been about this union that's being leaned on by the mob and their relationship, and and that's that. But I think putting Brando in the in the middle there complicates everything in what is honestly a fairly predictable but nonetheless very compelling manner. I mean. You know pretty early on that he is going to go with Edie and he is going to testify against the family. Like, that's pretty obvious. But nonetheless, I like his his position here, like the chip on it on both shoulders mm. in, in a way. And, and watching him come from being that prize fighter to getting screwed over and then having to navigate what is ostensibly a light, like a like a comfortable life of failure. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting element of the film. The way like he could very easily take any of these offers, be making a lot of money for the time doing nothing but it's there's this restlessness about him that i really like and, and navigating the political tensions and the social tensions of this 
waterfront community through his eyes, I think makes for a much more interesting film than what we maybe would have otherwise got. He's a character kind of, after he meets Edie, he's kind of split between two worlds um, after he, he, I don't know if he like awakens to what's really going on um, within the waterfront. I think it's hard not to really see for any of those mm-hmm. characters what is truly happening all the time. But I agree with you, Abram. I think that's really great. I particularly enjoy the way that these elements of his character, the way he is characterized in the film. We don't get all of this information spilled out in the beginning. You know, this comes out throughout the film. And it's Mm -hmm. as we learn about him, the film progresses and it adds to the complication of him and his, you know, learning in that cab ride that he, you know, he, he could have, he could have had the other guy. He could have gone for it. He could have been at the, at the championship in a, been a boxer as a career, been doing what he kind of seemed like he wanted to, or at least seemed like he felt more fulfilled with. Um, And I, I definitely appreciate that from a writing perspective of the character, the character was felt very natural. And as a, as a, person that develops and we learn about them as the film goes on yeah it's it it, it's his development that i mentioned earlier the arc and the character growth that we see that i think is fueled by um something that i don't honestly hear talked too much about in this movie but is is the supporting cast around them i i consider this an ensemble movie even though Mm. it is very focused on terry malloy's story the amount that you get on all the other characters around him and the actors that are he's bouncing off with Carl Malden, I think, does a fantastic job as Father Barry. Lee J. Yep. Cobb, obviously iconic, but as Johnny Friendly, just such a powerhouse. And even Marie Saint bringing, like, four first-time actress, a ton of emotion. And it is when he meets Edie, and not only just meets Edie, but, like, you know, starts to grow sweet upon her and and begins to build a human connection that he's obviously hey, been lacking beer, for. babe? <laughs> that he's obviously been lacking for his entire life. That mm-hmm. he's able to become aware. I think you you said he he not necessarily awakened towards these issues, but I think he's awakened to the fact that they are issues because he's been so sheltered in a certain perspective his entire life with everyone around him and and supporting him, quote unquote, are the mob and they're like this is the right thing to do and you you got to be tough and you got to just stay out of the way, stay quiet. But when he realizes the impact by building a personal bond with someone, that like that's a really natural growth that we're able to see this character like come to terms with his own reality in a like yeah. really sobering way. Like he realizes that he's been a shithead for most of his life. <laughs> he he's he's shown like human affection, real human affection and understanding for the first time by Edie and that is the that is the catalyst for his, his character arc in the movie, which I which I really enjoy. Um him uh, the the relationship between Terry and Edie is also uh, just really nice for like a 1950s Hollywood movie. A lot of times you're like, okay, it was it was a different time. I mean, and of course there are still there are um, some, there are some of that moments here for sure. But uh, honestly, I, I do I do quite enjoy their relationship nonetheless. Yeah, I think that it the film. I was thinking about this as I was watching it. And I was like, okay, so we 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 have our a plot, this union story of the corruption on the waterfront. And then we have the romance, but the way that they are tied together and the way that the film like allows the romance to take kind of hold in the early or I guess the the early second act of the film is really just about um, Terry and Edie's relationship together and how they, you know, connect and bond essentially over this very messed up situation that they kind of both acknowledge. I really think it is quite um realistic it feels 
very it feels about as wholesome as a movie like this could be they feel nice together and it's a i think it's a refreshing romance and one that you know i don't really expect from a film like this i don't expect it to be to have these feelings of tenderness and support and it's usually a lot more predatory if i'm gonna be honest yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we're gonna be honest yeah well there are it, moments it there are moments feels that way. yeah i mean <laughs> When 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 he shows up after because obviously and I love the sequence when he reveals that he was complicit mm-hmm. in her brother's murder and there's that like overpowering sound design of the train Timo it's sound and it's trains it's the it's, yeah. it's not it trains it's boats but it's great it's, it's close enough yeah, definitely it's steam uh, well of course good. they're on the waterfront not on the railway front the That's train actually, front you know that is actually a really good <laughs> yeah, point yeah yeah. But 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 after that, when he finally goes back to her after he's met with Charlie and like she won't let him in, so he's like, "You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna like I'm gonna kick the door down and then I'm going to I'm gonna accost her in in her hallway and pin her against the wall and kiss her." I'm like, "Yeah, this would this would not be written into the narrative today." Yeah, but I think otherwise, I agree with you that they do have some nice moments, like when he's trying to guide her out of the club as, as all or out of the bar mm-hmm. as all the wedding people are coming in there's a chaos there like there's certainly a, tucker as you're saying that's like, sort of exposing this tender element of yeah. him but then you get to that one scene i'm like oh okay. well, I, we, I are, think, we are we are still watching a movie from the year night from the decade 1950 right yeah mm-hmm. i think right. uh the reason why even something like that which is obviously a very aggressive moment doesn't stick out to me to as too bad obviously i i don't condone that i would not do that in real life. But I, I, I see Terry's toughness and lack of human interaction is this is him genuinely trying his best to be nice. And like, he like in that moment, he thinks the only solution is to do that. And, you know, who knows where the movie would have gone or the story would have gone if he hadn't b- broken down that door and, and made amends in a very forceful manner. But I do feel like he is being genuine through all of his actions. But also you recognize that Yes, he's being genuine, but also he's not socially informed, and he's not a—he's not a like soft-spoken guy. He's not particularly um, like understanding, romantic. yeah, yeah, or or romantic. So when he's telling her, "Oh, you know, just just drink a little sip of beer, just drink it," just I'm like, don't you shouldn't be forcing beer on someone like this. She's not she's not a fan. She doesn't want this, but he, like you can tell that he thinks that like this is the best way forward, and I think that makes him an interesting character to watch because even though if he, believe it or not doesn't act the way that we would like i'm still compelled to watch him work his way through the best he can yeah i think you know i I agree i I just think that i just think that certain Mm -hmm. sequences betray an older sensibility of filmmaking in these relationships and that takes me out of the the film a little bit when i'm like oh yeah okay i i see this scene i see how this scene oh if there's if there's one element of this film that really uh you know brings me in and 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 blankets me in and and really really tucks me into this narrative both the romantic and the dramatic elements uh it's the score i mean leonard bernstein's score does a lot of a lot of heavy lifting in those in those romance sequences that doing these big over-the-top really like like uh, flowery, um, like or, or orchestral pieces o- over yeah. these things, and then over the rest of the movie too. I mean, there's like a, there, there's like real jazzy, like zoot suit kind of vibes over one, uh, the beginning of the movie when we're like getting established in this seedy underbelly of whatever city this is. I, I don't York. know. I don't really guess New York or is it Philadelphia or is it New York? 
It's New York. Uh, I don't okay, think it's it's, it's, okay. it's not Manhattan, New York, though. It's maybe one of the okay. other boroughs. But yeah, like the seedy it's waterfront, yeah, mob underbelly, and then that comes out that like it, that, that sort of same score comes back multiple times. Um, but also, I love it in the uh, scenes between Terry and Edie, like when they're arguing it. It has this very like driving, um, th- this very driving score as these two characters are like having this moment of you know impassioned argument. It is really interesting. Uh, so Leonard Bernstein uh, knocking it out of the park, obviously, in this with this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and agree. I think, I think it's very fun that as as someone who has seen the other Leonard Bernstein movie, which is West Side Story and mm-hmm. West Side Story, and you mm-hmm. can feel the musical motifs being repeated here. Or, or yes. like, he, his style is very evident. Um, and I think it's actually kind of a shame that he didn't score more films. Like he he scored a couple other ones, but. These three are, like, so clearly at the top of his filmography that I think, like, I, I just enjoy his variety as well. I mean, you can feel the the big band sort of Broadway um, feel of the score, mm-hmm. but in, in all sorts of different ways. It's big band, it's high-octane energy when it needs to be, but it's also sometimes very quiet, just some simple mm-hmm. strings or something like that. And and the fact that you can get both of these and they both are equally compelling is very nice. Very nice. Indeed. Now, I think there's one more character that I think is worth mentioning, and that would be Father Barry, which played by yes. Carl Malden. Had to look that yeah. one up. Um, I He has a couple just really, really great speeches throughout the film. I think there's two of them in the church uh, before the church is attacked by the mob and then in the hold of the ship as yes. uh, after, what's his name, Dugan is killed. Mm. I think that those, those are some of the... He, He's almost like the the he he mentions conscious quite a bit, but he is kind of the conscious of the film, and mm-hmm. I feel like those performances really like drive me into feeling the same feelings that that Marlon Brando like should be feeling, uh, and it's they're they're invigorating. They're just good speeches and very well delivered monologues. Yeah, I I think the reason they work for me so well is not only because they are well written and because I think that guy has a lot of presence yeah. i totally buy that he's the you know, he's the priest i i yeah. totally mm-hmm. buy it he's he's father barry there's also something i think really commanding about being dressed all in black with incredible cinematography as i want to talk about i think the cinematography is amazing but it also just helps that the film has a real sense of stakes and weight to it because it is fairly graphically violent which i was not anticipating um so, you know, seeing the the blood on on the on the hand when Terry punches through the window, mm-hmm. and as he is like it's, it gets worse and worse in the bar, or seeing Charlie all shot up, or or even just as simple as seeing like the can thrown at at the father's head, and he's, he's bleeding us out of his face as he's giving this speech. Like there's a sense of consequence and, and violence that un, underpins everything that happens here, and that just makes these moments feel even more impa- impactful because I'm like, oh my god, he's really going. He's not going up against. The, the cigar chomping film mob. He's going up against the mob that has a financial interest in this union and they he will they will kill whoever they have mm-hmm. to to maintain that financial mm-hmm. interest. So I think the film just through its production, the design, through everything establishes this feeling of, of real weight, which I which I think helps those scenes. For sure. I, I love Father Barry in this movie as well. Um I, I think that that, that ship holds genes. The shiphold scene, excuse me, uh, should maybe surpass that taxi cab scene as one of the best of all time because that is really powerful stuff. I mean, not the, the dialogue is obviously fantastic, as, as Abram said at the beginning. This is a really, really well-written movie, 
uh, and Carl Malden is fantastic in delivering those lines. But I also love, like, the imagery, as, again, as Abram mentioned, with the cinematography of, like, him, you know, standing at the bottom of this ship you know, with, with, like, broken bottles of Irish whiskey and a, a busted crate at his feet uh, where a dead man used to be. And then all these other uh, dock workers are, like, sitting up in the rafters and they're, they're standing up at the top of the ship hold on the, on the actual deck of the ship looking down. And that's where um, the, the mob boss is as well. Johnny Friendly is up there as well. And they're sort of, like, they're just shaking their heads. As this priest is giving like this impassioned speech about like how long are you all going to take this you know take this tyrannical rule uh, uh, by by crime uh, in in your community how long are you going to let this happen and you stand idly by as they kill your friends and uh, steal your money and stuff like that it's really really great. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do is. have. A, I do have, uh, I have some more Marlon Brando trivia. I, I, I realize we kind of moved off Marlon Brando as an actor, but if we're wrapping up sort of the performances side of this, uh, there is just some more interesting Brando trivia. And okay. uh, this also relates to uh, Elia Kazan as well. Uh, all right. Um, so going back going back to the taxi cab scene, like I said, I got lots of trivia there. Um, apparently Marlon Brando uh, would try to um, improvise and ad-lib stuff in that, in that taxi cab scene, uh, to which... Uh, Elliot Kazan would yell, "Stop the shit, buddy!" That's just a fun thing that w- that was happening on set. Uh, as- That's something we would say. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other thing about the taxi cab scene, um, d- uh, producer Sam Spiegel is that how you pronounce it? He's oh, he's one of the classic producers of this era. He did like Lawrence of Arabia, um, Bridge uh, on the River Kwai. He, he did most of the David Lean movies. Yeah, uh, he apparently forgot to pay for rear projection equipment for the day. Uh, so that's why uh, you don't. I didn't notice this, but the, the the curtains are all drawn on the taxi cab because they didn't pay for rear projection equipment. Well, doesn't hey. really make much of a difference. You're not poke, yeah. you're not focusing on that. Bad too. No, you're right, Abram. Oh. If we if we may yes. though, let's 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 linger on cinematography sure. for a moment though, because you brought it up a second yes. ago, and I think it's it's so beautiful. Now, some of the cinematography tries to get symbolic and becomes a little bit on the nose like having literally having terry like in the in the pigeon coop as mm-hmm. he's talking about his sort of status in in the community which again is certainly a little bit heavy ham heavy fisted mm-hmm. but but i i still think it works nicely and then they're just some beautifully composed shots when I mean, you're totally right about the the being on the boat mm-hmm. you know, there's a real sense of scale like we look we look up at where the where the where the ship door is open to bring the the cargo crane down and Really, again, it's symbolic. You're in the belly of the beast down here, right? And you get all the guys leering at you from above. So I, I just think that it is so intentionally shot. And, you know, we, we watch a lot of pretty movies on Quest for the Bestest. You know, we get things like a like a King's Speech that's shot nicely. Maybe that tries a couple things here and there. But this is just so intentionally framed. And there's so much meaning between behind where the camera is placed. And it, I just love the ways that shots move. You know, the camera's not especially dynamic for a lot of the movie, but it just knows where to sit. And it knows how, where to frame that really cleverly. So I was just continually impressed when I, frankly, I haven't been impressed by the cinematography of a Quest film in a little while. So Yeah, I think that for me, it's not necessarily the cinematography that does it. Well, I do think it is very good. And the black and white, I think, absolutely gives it a depth. That, that it would, I think might lack in, in color, um, but it's the sets, it's the variety of sets that they are filming in. And of course, the camera being placed in certain angles, of course, you know, 
it adds dramatic effect to them, but seeing him in a pigeon coop on a roof, like, that, that, I've never seen that kind of situation in a movie before. And, like, the idea of not only just having the, the scene take place on a ship, but a ship that has this giant hole in the top of it, like, and, and you're not only looking from the bottom up just to see these people standing over the top, but, like, you're at, you're at a low angle watching Father Barry give this speech. So, like, there's this, there's this combination of the sets and their, and their symbolic stuff, which I, I never really felt was ham-fisted. Like, I think him being a, a pigeon breeder slash racer is one of the more interesting aspects of the movie that, of course, never really touched upon, but it gives him, like, a personality, human element, but also makes for a really interesting set. I think the most uh, impressive shots and most interesting shots, at least for me in this movie, are the ones of just looking out across the rooftops and seeing the, the smokestacks and the uh, TV, not TV antennas because it didn't have TV then, but, like, uh, the antenna, the stuff on top of the roofs, mm-hmm. like all of that, I think. Weather vanes? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Not on top of an apartment building, that wouldn't be particularly useful. And but the the pigeon coop thing is also thematically relevant, of course. It, it it's pretty clear what you know. Uh, that um Terry is, is the pigeons. You know he he's cooped up and you know he can't fly free for fear of being attacked by the hawks, the mob. Uh, so I I think it all works there. I, maybe it is a little heavy-handed, but people were stupid in the 1950s, so it needed to be. You know, I didn't notice <laughs> those elements the first time I watched it, and so on rewatch I did. I picked it up, especially this time. I think it threads the needle. I think it's clear, but I think it's applicable and it makes sense. And so it's not heavy-handed, but like I don't think there's any mistaking what it's trying to say about Terry and the pigeons. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I also there's a real heartbreaking moment. I think when when Terry returns to find all of his pigeons yeah. dead, and like he just sits down and just says, "What do you do that for?" And he's like holding this dead bird. Mm-hmm. And for for a guy that puts up this facade, even if we see the facade kind of lower a little bit, that's such a genuine moment that even if I think it's a little bit hokey that he's having the conversation with the pol- with the police detective between chicken wire right i i don't really care in the end because you're right timo i think it is it's clear in in its messaging and it facilitates these nice emotional moments i also love that i I love that moment too when he's talking to the police detective because it sort of um proves this point that terry you know for the complexity that we've talked about with his character and his character arc he is a very he's a simpleton i guess is how i'd put it um he's a simple guy yeah he's a simple guy and People use that to sort of influence him, as has has been the case for the first 20-some years of his life. But in this film, we get to see it used in interesting ways, like with the police detective who's very clearly like, uh, tell me a little bit about your boxing career. And uh, Terry's just like pouring out, out, outpouring all these like facts and stories and stuff like that. So it's not only that he's outpouring, it's that he just flips on a dime to like being super passionate about it. It's like, this is obviously his one track mind for like most of his life that someone's Mm -hmm. like, Hey, didn't I see you fight? He's like, oh yeah, 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 I did fight, <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and I could have, I could have won, but man, I, I hit him with the right, and I hit him with the and left, here, and it's like, and here's boom. these, cri- and here's this crime I was implicated in when I did it, <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, but I also love uh, towards the end. I love the ending of this movie, by the way, uh, when when he gets the fucking shit kicked out of him by Johnny Friendly in in his. Uh, his, his dumb gang. I love Johnny Friendly's dumb gang, especially the one guy who. There's a guy who looks like a if a gorilla was transformed into a man, uh, and there's another guy who just says definitely like it, that's his whole bit. Is he says 
definitely like a couple of times. He's they're great, but Terry's got the shit kicked out of him by these guys, sort of like behind this floating houseboat office thing. And uh, Father Barry goes down there, and he recognizes that Terry is a symbol for the rest of these dock workers. He's like, mm-hmm. this guy need. If we're going to enact change here, this guy got the shit kicked out of him, but he needs to get up, walk across this pier, and go to work. Otherwise, otherwise, this whole thing was for naught. So to get that done, he says. He leans down to to Terry and says, "Johnny Friendly is laying down odds that you won't walk." And then he like you know like clambers to his feet and he shuffles over there. Great moment. I love that. Yeah, I mean, you just remind me of that whole last scene. That that last sequence is the sequence that sticks into my mind when I started watching the film again. I was like, "Oh, I'm in for a treat," because at the end awaits just a truly great couple minutes of cinema the the beat down the way everyone is reacting i don't know it's like a it's like an everybody clapped moment except it just Mm -hmm. feels so earned and it feels so right that i just i don't care that everybody essentially claps at the end but like yeah of course they would that makes so much sense Mm Sometimes it's okay for to have a Hollywood ending where the bad guys lose and get they get embarrassed and thrown into the ocean or whatever. Sometimes (laughs) that's pretty good. Here it it was a little bit cartoonish in those moments, like we got we've got all these guys just standing there looking downtrodden and Mm -hmm. and that's that that's their I mean obviously that's what their life has led them to. They're in a terrible situation, but that's their bit. They're just the guys that stand there in a huge crowd and look downtrodden. But like all these like thematic moments that i think can't could feel cheesy end up feeling fine I, I personally i don't feel like super emotional when i'm watching that i'm like yeah this make like this makes sense this this mm-hmm. does feel right um but it, it's not one of the sequences that stands out to me maybe because it is kind of obvious and and hollywoody but um i i do like showing uh showing the inspiration that uh that terry has found uh, inspirational position that Terry has found himself in and, and pushing to his last limit to go to work for the first time in his life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Timo, I know you mentioned you want to talk, you wanted to talk politics a little bit. Yeah. I, I Usually I like to keep politics yeah, it out of my movies. always goes great at Quest. Yeah. <laughs> usually I like to keep politics out of my movies. You know, I, I, most sure. of the movies that we talk about here are obviously not political, but no point, way. This one, wouldn't reveal what they were. Exactly. This one um, does have some interesting political bra- background to it. If you if you want me to talk a little bit about that, just to lay the groundwork a little bit, Timo. Go right ahead. I, I am interested to hear what you say, because I, I talked about this film in a class of mine, and we compared it with a, a film that is similar and antithetical in its politics. Um, yes. But I want to hear what you've got, what you pulled up. So the... Famous blacklisted author and writer Arthur Miller was originally set to write the script for this film, um, but left after he was informed that he was going to have to make the villains of the films communists. Uh, mm. So that 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 that's a that's an element right there. Um, and on the waterfront is I didn't I didn't know this, uh, but I, I reading the background of this was quite interesting. The film is widely known to be an act of expiation on the part of Elliot Kazan for naming names to the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee during the Joseph McCarthy witch hunts in the 1950s. Elliot Kazan is sort of infamous for, you know, buckling under the pressure of these of these investigations and naming a bunch of people who had ties to the Communist Party, or allegedly, or whatever you want to say. 
Um, it is it is less widely reported that Kazan intended it as a direct attack at his former close friend Arthur Miller, who had been openly critical of Kazan's actions. Specifically, um, apparently, Arthur Miller had Kazan in mind when he wrote The Crucible, which, um, if you went, if, if you took a, a beginning high school English class, you've probably read. Yes. yes. Well, so, half yes, of us that, that is the, that is the groundwork there, is this sort of, this, uh, this dispute between Arthur Miller and Elliot Kazan with these respective works, uh, yeah. about each other, essentially. Hmm. I, I hadn't actually heard that before, but the, the, the situation that this film that I find this film in is is totally in this McCarthyism sphere. This film is so profoundly anti-union. Like this film essentially in a couple moments equates all unions to be like this one, to be run by really corrupt people who really exploit the the workers who are forced to work underneath them. The film, I think in this it like supports itself it creates a really really negative picture of labor unions in the but like in the narrative it all makes sense that's why i'm like i'm like i disagree with what it's saying but like i can't, I can't really find fault with it because it makes the film's story work but the way in which it is so profoundly just like unions are bad and they really don't do a lot good for anyone is i it's it's not a nuanced take it's like a it, it is it is quite reductivist it's not really founded in it, it's some i don't know it's like a little bit of fact but like not much hey, here's where i come out of here's here's where i come from timo um because in doing trivia research for this as well but i'll get to that in a second um I think that because if memory serves, I think Father Barry does have like a line where he says, "And take your union back." So it's not it's it's more about you know wrenching the union from the hands of these corrupt mob guys and giving it back to the workers, which is what unions are all about and why yeah. they're actually good. Uh, so uh, hot take there. I know, I know. Um, it, it is unfortunately it is it is kind of a hot take. Uh, but uh, on the other hand. This movie is, you know, based on truth. The actual union that the film is based on was busted for mob ties only months after the movie came out. Hmm. After? And, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and apparently, um, apparently, like, all the main characters in this are also based on real people, which is interesting as well. Uh, so, yeah, that that's where I'm coming from, is that... Sure, like in a, in a broad sense, it might seem quite critical in, in conflating unions with crime. But at the same time, um, I think there is a pro-union message to be gotten out of this, you know, that, it, that we are painting the guys who are manipulating the union for their own financial gain are the villains. And as well as the fact that it's telling a truth of the time is that this is kind of what happened sometimes with these unions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that like... Once it's expanded, there's a line about like, oh, like you're not going to be able to get work for anywhere on the seaboard from from Maine to Florida. Yeah, Meaning yeah, is, yeah. Is kinda, it, it, like, eh, it's kind of it's taking it pretty far. I guess you <laughs> could you could say you could maybe extrapolate that from from yeah, the circumstances yeah. in real life. But, you know, it is I, it, as in as with the romance, it is a product of its time. I, I just don't think the film could have gotten away with anything other than what it does in this time period, especially if Elliot Kazan is like trying to trying to bootlick basically the mccarthy mccarthy and the rest of you know the, the hollywood censors who really wanted to eliminate any mm -hmm. any of these narratives from films to really 
paint unions in this extraordinarily negative picture and to kind of plant the thing is is it's it's a little it's insidious because of win, of this film wins best picture and it plants in the minds of everyone that like that, that unions are corrupt and while that i think that you know we have to you, you say that the this specific one is and thinking about you know jimmy hoffa and the teamsters and yeah they're pretty corrupt too not all of them yeah. are like that and so it's just I don't know. It, it, it's part of this confluence of events that leads to like the very a downfall in unionization in America, you know, in the decades following in the in the 60s and the 70s when they all kind of fall apart just because everyone loses the sport from and, you know, media and movies are, are, are there, you know, they lead the public in thinking and in, in telling everyone what to think about whatever. And in this case, it's unions and they don't tell the public to think favorably. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting to like put this in conversation with Miss Miniver or something. Mm. Just sort of talking about sort of perhaps the political favorability to some of the films that do win Best Picture. Um, but I, I think actually maybe I'm just stupid, and this is very possible. Yeah. But when when, we, when I think about Miss Miniver, I think that there is zero zero way to conflate what it what its political leaning is to, to the point as we're discussing where it is propaganda mm -hmm. good propaganda but nonetheless constructed as propaganda i don't think that this is quite the same and frankly i found myself aligning a little bit more with with tanner's notion of there being some kind of pro-union mm -hmm. lining here in this sort of sense of because it almost seemed like there needed to be a sense of class solidarity at the end of the film to overthrow big bad Brian, what's his name? Johnny Jimmy, Friendly. Friendly. Big Johnny Jimmy. Friendly. Big Pockets Johnny. <laughs> big Pockets Johnny, is. you got it. <laughs> <laughs> to get everybody back to work and to get everybody safely in, situated on the waterfront, they had to eliminate the the, the people. <laughs> yeah, Santa Ana said the nice. movie. Uh, to, to eliminate those above them. So, now, I don't think that in any way undercuts what you're saying to... I'm not suggesting that this is secretly a subversive pro-union film, but I do think that there are readings of it that are not as clear-cut as mm -hmm. that, in, especially in comparison to some of the other politically driven for their time period, very much in, lo in lockstep with what the film just, quote-unquote, should have been expressing, you know, I don't think this one is as clear in, in that effect. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to mention that, like, I don't I don't actually think this affects my score at all. I think that this is just an interesting oh, okay. thing to yeah. throw in and discuss about mm -hmm. the context of the film. Because, like I said, I think it it kind of needs to be like this. It needs to have these elements to really work as well as it does. I don't think it could have been constructed in a way in which it is like is i don't really know i mean would would it be a, would the the evil corrupt people be like the the owners of the the shipyard or the owners of the docks possibly but i feel like that doesn't have the same effect and the same connection as jimmy friendly and the guys controlling the mob controlling the union does so i think that mm -hmm. it's just how the film is not really like a bearing on its quality or even my enjoyment of it. I still enjoy the film a lot when I see it, even though I'm kind of just like, mm. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, talking to you. You have something to say? Go for it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, sorry. Uh, is I I think that um the reason why the whole storyline works for me and whether I whether or not I see it as staunchly anti-union or secretly pro-union 
I don't know, I, <laughs> maybe somewhere in the middle. I, I, did, I didn't really think about that. I'm just like, yep, this is the world of the movie, and th- this is what's happening. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that the reason why it does work so well, Timo, to what you're saying, and, and even with a political uh, perspective that you disagree with, you're able to really become enraptured by by the stakes that they're placed in, is that you can really feel the presence of the mob everywhere in this. You're, you're seeing these people, like, slink around in alleys and, like, turn their eyes downward as, like, someone else is getting beat up because they just know that they don't just don't have a chance otherwise. And all these guys standing outside as they're not getting paid or, or can't don't have a chance to get paid and saying, come on, man, I, I just... I need, I have a family to take care of. And they, they throw the coins and, and everyone scrambles for them. Like, there's these, so many of these moments that I think make this world feel, like, dour. Like, re- just incredibly mm-hmm. dour. Like, basically everyone's in a shitty position in this movie. Because I, I, they are. And, like, it just, it, it does give it a unique feel of, of, yep, this has been going on for so long that no one even tries to think of what they could do differently. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, it's so sad and so yeah. when so when uh terry like hobbles his way across and goes to work for the first time as as we've been saying is like finally a spark of hope but you don't really like feel that spark of hope too much and like the other guys because like they don't know if this is really gonna like let lead to anything like i, I feel like there's a like almost even though it's a super positive ending in terms of energy there's like a sour note to it it's like these guys have been stuck in this rut for their entire adult lives and maybe even, you know, a generation back or whatever that who knows if this is going to actually change anything. Yeah. Of course, if we do have writing issues, we could maybe take it up with uh, Sam Spiegel over the uh, the credited screenwriter, Bud Schulbarg, I think is maybe how you say that, or Schulbarg, uh, because Sam Spiegel was apparently super overbearing of Bud Schulbarg uh, when you know, he has to write this perfect screenplay, which... Could have been characters in in the 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 writing itself, or could have been maybe some haze code things, maybe some aligning with uh, po- uh the political narratives of the time sort of things. Maybe why uh the bad guys are the mob, which are universal bad guys versus like guys who actually own the ship shipyard, like you were saying, Timo. Um, apparently, <laughs> Sam Spiegel was overbearing to the point where uh, uh Bud Schulberg's wife woke up uh, at three thirty a.m. one morning. Uh, to find him shaving. She asked him where he was going, and Schoolbreak said, I'm driving to New York to kill Sam Spiegel, because he was just so overbearing of this entire this entire writing process. Um, but it probably, you know, to an extent, it probably paid off, because this did win uh, Best Screenplay at the Oscars that year, if I can roll into wins and noms again. Uh, this won Best Picture as well, obviously. Marlon Brando won Best Actor, as I said. Uh, apparently, he was, like, super... Like when uh, when Kazan showed him this, the finished film for the first time, he walked out of the screening room because he thought he did an awful job, but he went, ended up winning Best Actor. So uh, Ava Marie Saint won for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Spiegel uh, apparently made the call to run her in Supporting Actress, and it paid off because she won. She probably would, even though her role was technically a lead uh, by, by specifications. Uh, Elia Kazan won Best Director. Uh, it also won Best Black and White Cinematography, uh, Best Set Decoration, Best Editing, and it was nominated for. We got three supporting actor nominations in this movie. Uh, Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, and Rod Steiger were all nominated for wow. Best Supporting Actor. Impressive. Uh, in, 
That's the and entire ensemble cast that I talked about, all yeah. nominated for Drag exactly. Girls. Everyone was nominated here. Super great. So yeah, great performances, and the the, the the Academy got it right. And of course, Leonard Bernstein was nominated for Best Original Score. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I do have uh, one last bit of uh, just interesting tie-in trivia. Uh, for in in the context of where this movie falls in um, the quest for the bestest series, so if we if you want me to read that out while we pull up the uh, the score sheet, unless anyone and anyone else has anything to say, any final points? Not personally. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, apparently uh, there was uh, Elliot Kazan had a real tough time getting Marlon Brando to sign on board for this film. But uh, Elliot Kazan, he was a crafty little guy. Of course, he did he he did squeal to the House on Americans Activity Committee. So he was a, he was a crafty little man. What, um, what so do they call? What do they call like rat? They're like ratting it out. What was the other one? The other like term they used in the film? Don't uh, I don't remember either. He I don't did remember that. either. <laughs> they call him cheesy. Oh yeah, Elliot Kazan. Something else I was watching. Nibbling on that cheddar, I think. Uh huh. Uh, so, Elliot Kazan came up with a little ploy to get Marlon Brando on board. He appealed to Marlon Brando's pride as an actor. Uh, he had Carl Malden direct a scene, uh, with an up-and-coming actor from the actor studio playing, uh, the Terry Malloy role. So he, uh, and then they figured that, uh, the, com- that Brando, competitive as he was, would not be eager to see such a major role handed to some, you know, like, green-behind-the-ears screen heartthrob. Uh, the ploy worked. Mar- uh, Brando did end up signing on to the role because he, you know, he's like, "Oh my God, they're gonna give it to this this schmuck, this new guy on the scene." Uh, and unfortunately, the actor Paul Newman did oh. not get the role. <laughs> he was the he was the green behind the ears uh, screen heartthrob that uh, they they used in the scene. So well, just a little interesting coming off of the Sting last week. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. In time, in time, Paul. In time, you'll in time, you'll, Paul, you'll get just, there. Just bide your time. Okay, should we <coughs> give this film a score? Let's do it. I've got a number okay. there. Okay, we've calculated it with a small and increasingly amount of difficulty. The computer <laughs> is it's really going. not helping us figure out where this film goes, but it's got an average score of 8.4 and that means it's going at place number 28 on our list sandwiched in between sandwiched i guess on top by the best years of our lives then on the waterfront at place number 28 and then below it at place number 29 argo and the point breakdown is starting from top to bottom nine from me abram gave it a 8.7 tanner gave it an 8.2 and then tucker gave it a 7.8 so, uh, anyone have for any particularly strong notions about their score? No, no. not particularly. I mean, this kind of reflects what we said at the beginning, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've raised my score a little bit, I think, thinking through, uh, the, the, the characters and the writing and, and especially the cinematography and stuff that we talked about and, and the score, obviously. Uncontroversial to say that On the Waterfront is a good movie. I'll, I Tucker, I wish you hadn't changed your score because I only like this segment if we get to litigate at. It's a great point. Yeah, sorry, I should have dropped it. <laughs> we were so close because there's so many eight point three, so many eight point five. So many better movies than eight point three. Yeah, that's just how the list works oh, out, Tucker. Boys. It's just how it goes. Okay, well, I think then that means we've got a spin, right? That's all we've got left, that's right? So we as got left to usual. do. Mm-hmm. As usual, well, a tenor. 
Lead me off when you're ready. <coughs> All right. <coughs> wheel, wheel, what's your deal? Give us a movie that makes us squeal. Is it on digital? Is it on real? Wheel, wheel, what's your deal? And you can see it as clearly as I can. Wheel's deal is the number 14. Tucker, what is hmm. that? What film is that going to be? Tucker, what the hell is that? <laughs> What the hell is going on? Number 14 brings us to the grand old year, just two years removed, of 1956. We're going to be watching a movie from Michael Anderson, uh, starring David Divin? Uh, Somebody, what, Cantinflis? Somebody Uh, Cantinflis? Somebody named Cantinflis. Finlay Curry, Robert Morley, Charles Boyer. And and down there, if you scan, you got Frank Sinatra, Buster Keaton, Marlena Dietrich, Peter Lorre, uh, John Carradine, what? all sorts of classic names. John Gilgood, Cesar Romero. These people at we're the bottom watching, of the cast list. They're they're not at the top. Yeah, oh. uh, we're gonna be watching Around the World in eighty days on, oh. at a snappy three hours and two minutes. Oh, oh god boy. damn it! We've been avoiding these long ones for a while now. We've been dodging the bullets of these three-hour 1950s or 1940 to 1960 movies, but we're back, baby. We're back we for the We are vengeance. back. Quest is rightfully in its its spot. Quest's yeah. spot is at long. the three-hour movie. Well, I'm, boy, also, oh I'm also seeing a Shirley MacLaine in here, a Charles Coburn. So, uh, so uh, all these, fa- all these uh, super, super, actually famous people are not like the stars of this film. They're towards the bottom Tanner, of the list. I actually, I actually uh, employ implore everyone to go to the letterbox page for Around the World in Every Day, Eighty Days, and see how stupidly long the cast list is for this. I've never seen a longer cast list in my entire life. Damn. Well, that that right. has to mean something. That has to mean something. I mean, it's better. Film. Have you any More of you seen it before? Better movie. No. Oh. Okay. No. Well, then it's on we HBO might... Max though. Easy to access. Yeah, that's right. I think right. I've seen a remake of this film, like a like a maybe like a Disney remake at some point. But hmm. <laughs> my HBO Max subscription lives to see another. Month. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, well, there we go. Something. Around the world in 80 days. It won't take us that long to get to the next episode of Quest for the Bestest, though. Stick around for next week. We'll be talking about that film uh, with all fresh eyes. We, you know, we uh, many of us saw the film this time beforehand, saw On the Waterfront. Mm-hmm. We rewatched it. We all saw it before the recording. <laughs> hopefully so, hopefully so. Some of you are we'll lying, we'll switch I can it up tell. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> we won't watch the movie, and we'll just talk about it. Yeah, no, God. Those, are, those, are, those are falsehoods. I jest... We will all watch the movie and we'll come back and report with thoughts and findings and opinions. That's what we do here on the Quest for the Bestest. Thank you for joining me to talk about On the Waterfront. I really enjoyed it. We will be back next time. And until then, peace.